Blog Talk Radio. Guys, Guys Radio, this is your host, Robert Manny, welcoming you to the podcast, podcast number 315 of Guys, Guys Radio, the place where when men and women can be at their best, everyone wins. That's Guys, Guys Radio. All podcasts for Guys, Guys Radio are available on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and of course, Blog Talk Radio. And we've got a great show this evening and a great guest, Linda Bloom is going to join us. Her and her husband, Charlie, wrote this very cool book called 101 Things I Wish I Knew When I Got Married, Simple Lessons to Make Love Last. They were on the show uh, over the summer. Uh, We were talking about one of their other publications, and I noticed that they had written this book, and I found it so provocative, and it sold over 100,000 copies. This is a big seller. So I invited them back. Linda's going to be here to talk about the book, And uh, I can't wait. So we're going to bring her out in a few minutes. Let's quickly catch up and see what's going on. Here we are in New York City on October 3rd. Wow. We're making the turn into the fourth quarter into the fourth quarter of this year. It's been an interesting year. I was reading some every once in a while. I'll pull up uh, Susan Miller's astrology zone and just check out. I'm a, I'm a Capricorn, uh, December 22nd. So I'm right on the cusp and I had my chart done. They keep saying I'm a Sagittarius because I was born at 1223 after midnight in Jersey City. And because of where I was born in that early time, I keep getting called a uh, Sagittarius. Yet I've always, I've always technically December 22nd is Capricorn. So anyhow, I've always been kind of on the fence when it comes to horoscopes. But every once in a while, I'll read, and I'll read about Capricorn because it seems to fit me a lot more. And uh, I was reading that this year, not just for Capricorns, but for everybody, has been kind of a a heavily retrograded year, whether it's uh, Mercury, Mars, or uh, Venus, that uh, this is a year for people in general where it's a time where, like, not a lot of things come to complete fruition. And there's another retrograde coming up for Mercury, I believe. And uh, because of retrograde, it can be a really good thing because you can take a step back and you can kind of clear your head and decide where you really want to go. It's not a good good time for plowing forward or sometimes completion of projects or signing on the dotted line and things like that. So sometimes things get delayed and uh, slowed up, but a lot of times it's for a really good reason. And supposedly, from what I was reading, that that's been the story of this year. So you think about that. We have this battle for the Supreme Court spot. You've had uh, so many things kind of get uh, stuck in in the mire of uh, partisan politics in uh, D.C. And, uh, you know, these fits and starts, this uh, kind of a relationship with uh, North Korea. What's that all about? Uh, the trade deals, this tariffs, uh, battles with China and other countries. So it's a, it's a time where not a lot of things a year, where not a lot of things have kind of been pulled over the finish line. And I'm sure we're going to see a little more of that going into the fourth quarter. Um, what's going on? Here in New York City, we had a gorgeous day today. This week's actually been very nice. October started out great. And it's supposed to be beautiful right through the weekend. Uh, It's a four-day weekend. We've got Columbus Day uh, next Monday. And that's become another one of those hot-button issues where uh, the country is divided. I have Italian-American descent in my family, and I am very anti-Columbus Day. And I'll tell you why. If you read up on the history of Columbus, he was a ballsy sailor and uh, a really gutsy guy who, uh, you know, came to the New World. But when he got here, the way him and his brother and his troops treated the local people, absolutely not deplorable, heinous, evil, horrible. So I don't, 
it's hard to it's hard to get behind Columbus anymore when you really read his history. Now they talked about tearing down his statue and uh, uh, at Columbus Circle and all that. I think at this point you just leave it. That's just me because uh, you know it's a polarizing issue. But I personally, and I am of Italian American descent, I am not a big fan of uh, how Columbus treated people because th- when it comes down to things, always come down to how you treat other people. And he was a big fail in that instance, but he was a gutsy person and he sailed across the sea in those small boats. And he had a lot of moxie to do that. And I give, he gets, deserves all the credit for that courageous. But, um, you know, when he got here, the way they treated these poor natives, it's like unbelievable, unbelievably bad, the, the killings and the murderings and just to use these people, just horrible. Just read up on this guy. He wasn't the only one either. That was pretty much the attitude of a lot of the explorers who came to the came to the states. Um, so that's coming up um, right now. It's, we have big sports time. And uh, if you like sports and professional sports, you've got it all happening right now. You've got Major League Baseball. You've got the wild card playoffs right now. My beloved New York Yankees. I'm going to watch them as soon as our podcast is over. They play the Oakland A's at Yankee Stadium. I'm about uh, three or four subway stops away from the stadium where I live and where our studio is. Um, It should be a great game. What's interesting is that the Oakland uh, A's, they're going to do something that's never been done in postseason is that they're going to just run through their bullpen. They're going to pitch relievers. They're not, they're not going out there with a starting pitcher. They're just going to work through the bullpen because it's one game and they figure this is do or die, whatever it takes. And the Yankees are, are putting out their top starter, who has the best stuff. He's had a bad second half, Luis Severino. So we'll see what happens. Two different strategies. Both teams have a lot of power. They both hit a lot of home runs. Yankee Stadium is actually, this this Yankee Stadium, the new one, is very conducive for home runs. So I think it's going to be a fun game. I think it's going to be high scoring. And, uh, you know, there was a good game last night, the Cubs and the Rockies. And I was watching it. I was like, I was very disappointed because every single call, I felt bad for the Rockies because they, first of all, they lost uh, to, I think they lost to Milwaukee and then they had to, they lost to somebody. I'm not sure. Maybe it was Milwaukee or maybe the Cubs lost to Milwaukee and the Rockies lost to the Dodgers, I guess. That's right. So the Rockies had to travel. First, they had to go from, they had a home game on Sunday. Then they had to travel to LA. So they had to travel West. And then that on Monday, they had to go East to, Chicago and now tomorrow they have to go to Milwaukee so they've been traveling men and it's not it's not easy uh, on uh, athletes when they're so fine-tuned to do all that travel so anyhow they won two to one or three to one um, or two to one in 13 innings I think it was so we got the Yankees tonight and then so that's major league baseball then we get into the whole postseason divisional series championship series world series so the whole month of October is like a lot of baseball games then we're right in the smack dab in the middle of the NFL. We're at the quarter of the year season mark, four games down. A lot of surprise teams, a lot of surprise players. The ratings actually now, as of this past Sunday, they bumped up. They were down a bit. Now they bumped up. So you haven't heard anything, though, about people taking a knee and all that stuff. So that's good because I was getting out of hand. Personally, I could care less if people take a knee. I, 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 I did not serve in the military. I respect our armed forces and I think they should be praised taking a knee or not. uh, According to the people taking a knee is not a statement about not respecting the military. It's about having an issue with some of the things going on in our country and our culture. So I have to respect them for that. I think the way to really treat the military is when they get back, give them great benefits and give them jobs. And that's not happening. So I think we'd be much better off focusing on that than if people want to take a knee during the national anthem. That's just my guy's guy opinion. Uh, what else is happening? I don't want to get into the whole Trump-Kavanaugh thing. With It's just like, I think the overarching issue is that our politics are so partisan that, you know, what happens is now is like, okay, let's say it's 50-50 in terms of the voters. I really think the majority of the country is against Trump, but the people didn't come out and vote enough of them, even though he lost the popular vote. I think there's a lot of people who didn't show up at the polls. That said, you got to show up if you want to make a difference. So let's say it's about 50, 50. 
that doesn't mean that if one side wins, they get everything. It should be a 50-50 means that, you know, there's an equal amount of representing the people. There's an equal amount of people on both sides. They should be listened to instead of just ramming through your own agenda. But that's what's happening. And now it's happening with the most powerful court, court in the land. And I would make the suggestion that I think it's time to end the lifetime appointment for Supreme Court justices. Make it a decade. That's plenty of time to sit on the court. You don't have to be 85 years old and be on the Supreme Court. You don't have to serve on the Supreme Court for 40 years. Because what's happening now, it's a battle to be stacking the court because it can make a huge difference in the way this country is run and it affects each and every citizen. And uh, when one side or the other side saying, okay, we won, so we get 100%, you get nothing, even though if they won by 1%, it's really dysfunctional. And that's what's happening in our country right now. Elsewhere, uh, the one other thing I would say about uh, the whole Brett Kavanaugh issue is I was, I was going back and forth with a buddy of mine who was uh, all supportive of Kavanaugh, and I'm questioning. And uh, he was uh, kind of trashing uh, the victim. And this guy's got three daughters. And I'm like, you have three daughters and you're really – you're really accusing the victim of not remembering things. If you know anything about assault and trauma, you know that people who go through that don't remember every detail. And she was very composed. Ford was very composed. Kavanaugh wasn't composed. I was really wondering if you're so innocent, why wouldn't you want everybody open everything up? I mean, if I was accused of something and I was innocent, I'd want to get it, get it all out, out on the table to show conclusively. It wasn't a part of any of this, but We'll see what happens. So at least they're looking at things now. You can't, what's happening now is they're trying to suppress certain things and limit the scope and all that. Just open it up. Let them go through this. If it takes two weeks, fine. I mean, it can't go on indefinitely, but let's, let's see what happens. The issue is the Republicans are trying to wisely, you know, thinking of their own agenda, push this through before the midterms and just in case they don't carry the House and the Senate. So it's all a big game, and we're the pawns in it, me and you, Mr. and Ms. Model Citizens, the citizens of the United States. We're the ones who always get the short end of the stick, it seems like, and people are pissed off. Okay, let's talk a little bit about um, what's going on. Okay, the whole Guy's Guy's movement. You know, what's a Guy's Guy about? Well, a Guy's Guy is kind of an updated, it's not a macho man, but modern man casual confidence, unassuming strength, seductive integrity, emotional intelligence, timeless style, and also a lot of fun. And you can be a guy's guy. You can be a good guy. And if you are innocent, you probably have nothing to fear. You may be accused of some things, but you probably have nothing to fear. So anyhow, we need more guys, guys today because uh, there's too many, there's too many men who are hanging on too tightly to the old boys club. We have to give that up enough. And you can see it playing out on TV right in front of your eyes. But as a guy, I can say, you know what? Let's let this go. Let's not. We can't control everything forever. Open things up. Let's listen to everybody. So that's what. Uh, that's what I'm talking about right now. Let's listen to people. Let's not be stuck in old white men have to control everything. They've controlled everything for a long time. Let's loosen this thing up a little bit. Okay. All right. So I'm going to bring Linda Bloom out in just a moment and uh, we'll be back. And in case you didn't know. You're listening to the guys, guy radio. All right, we're back on Guys Guys Radio. As I mentioned, we have a special guest this evening. We like to talk about life, love, the pursuit of happiness, all types of stuff on Guys Guys Radio that have to do with men and modern man and some of the issues that we face and also women, things that everybody can relate to, whether it's love, whether it's lust, whether it's metaphysical things, wellness, um, spirituality. What I want to do on this show is open up a buffet of, of tools and offerings that people can consider that may, may help them in their life. I think people nowadays are seeking. 
They're seeking more. I think particularly men, they're starting to seek and say, I'm not just my job and my paycheck. There's got to be more than that. Um, And it's happening. So I want to put an offering out to everybody, men and women. These are some things that are available to you. This is some knowledge that are available to you. This is some, these are some experts that have done some work that you might want to check check out. So here we are. Uh, As I mentioned, Linda and Charlie Bloom had been on the show before. They're both psychotherapists and they have over 55 years of combined experience in the relationship counseling area. In way back in 1987, they founded Bloomwork, which offers seminars to individuals and couples on improving relationships. And uh, Linda and Charlie agree that their greatest achievement has been fulfilling marriage, their fulfilling marriage over 30 years. They live in Northern California. As I mentioned, Linda is going to be our guest. Charlie couldn't make it this evening. The name of the book is 101 Things I Wish I Knew When I Got Married. And I got to tell you, that's a real need because it's just like being a parent. You know, you really don't get a guidebook. You know, the baby comes out and then you figure it out. You can read a lot of stuff, but you still, you know, you're still learning on the fly as we're doing in, in marriage too. I can say that from my own experience, I waited a long time to get married. I've been married eight years now going on yeah, eight and eight and a half years now. And I, wow, I wish I had a guidebook like this when I got married, simple lessons to make love last 101 things, 101 things I wish I knew when I got married. Our special guest is Linda Bloom. Welcome to guys, guys radio, Linda. How are you? I'm doing great. And I'm so happy to be back on the show again. And since I was on the show a few months ago with Charlie, we have mm-hmm. celebrated 50 years together. Wow, fantastic. <laughs> fantastic. And we're still really into each other. What did you do to celebrate? Well, we went to Europe, and we took uh-huh. a whole group with us. And we were in fantastic. Ireland for 10 days. We had never visited there before, and it's true what they say about the Emerald Isle. It's gorgeous. I've never seen scenery is lovely we we went to many different places and it was really stunning scenery oh fantastic i've been to scotland and i've been to england but i did not get over uh, i did not get to wales or ireland but i i've heard the same thing that it's just gorgeous scotland is gorgeous in its own way too um mm-hmm. did you get, did you get over there at all no we were in ireland the whole time and wow we we took a group, many of the people had visited other countries with us on previous. That's one of the things that we do. We go on magical mystery tours to Asia and Europe and South America. And so we're, we're it's like we traveled with our tribe. It was fun. Awesome. It was fun. It's like going on a family trip with your relatives you really enjoy. Oh, as as opposed to some other relatives, right? <laughs> yeah, they're all a mixed bag. You know, some right. of them we wouldn't have too much to do with if they weren't in our family, but we make allowances for them. Now, did you uh, go to the Guinness factory? Oh, yes. Oh, we did drink some very good stout. Mm-hmm. Great. All right. Well, let's uh, let's get over into your book. Now, this book, uh, I've got to ask you, of course, what was the inspiration? I mean, you and Charlie, did you look at each other and say, we've got to write a book about mar- marital success? Well, we had been thinking about writing a book, but it was really dancing around the edges of our imagination until Charlie's little sister set her wedding date and asked Big Brother, would he speak at the ceremony? And so Charlie got out all these gorgeous books, Rilke and poetry books, and they would speak about one aspect of marriage. And I said, Charlie, why don't you write your own thing? And so he sat down and he wrote up some very beautiful, just one-liners, where some of the lessons that we wish we had had a wise relative in our family to tell us at the beginning, at the wedding or early in our marriage, and we had to, you know, use the Braille method of feeling our way along and trial and error and fall down, get up. We really were motivated to save his little sister some trouble. And so he came up with 20, and they were beautiful. And when it was his turn to speak, he totally upstaged the minister. And everybody was elbowing their partner. See, see, I've been trying to tell you that. And when the (laughs) ceremony was over, a lot of people ran up to him and said, you've got to publish this. I want a copy of this. 
And so we were so lit up about the enthusiastic response that on the way home from Los Angeles, we were living in wine country up in Sonoma at the time, Mm -hmm. we came up with a whole bunch more of them. And we were going to publish it just as the one-liners. But as we were showing them to people, they say, oh, can't you just tell a little bit more? And that's when we started to write the stories and put a little bit more meat on the bones. But they're still small. I think that's why the business, the the whole sales, the you know marketing campaign was so successful, is because they're just little jewels. They're little tidbits. People don't have to choke on them. They're hors d'oeuvres. No, I agree. They're bite-sized and they're delicious, so you did a great job. Um, <laughs> let me ask you this. You had five decades of being married. Now, uh, from a personal standpoint, and then taking a step back and looking at marriage uh, um, objectively, what? give us some insights. This is not in the book. I just came up with this question, so I'm going to ask it. Um, which decade was the best? Which decade was the toughest? Is there any rhyme or reason reason as to how the decades flow when you're married uh, for you know for half a century? That's easy and, to and, answer for me. I okay. feel that the decade that we're in right now is the absolute best. Okay. I feel like we've we've ironed out so many wrinkles. Do you know we've dealt with so mm-hmm. many differences? We've really cultivated so much goodwill and patience and good conflict management skills that we're having a golden age right now. But I can tell you when the hard part was. The hard part was a dozen years into the marriage when we relocated from the East Coast where all our family and friends were to the West Coast, and I was wildly enthusiastic about moving to California with the warm weather and so forth and so on. But my my Charlie became a corporate guy, and he just got lost. Do you know that he he was a flaming workaholic for about five years before he he left that job and resigned, and it almost broke our marriage up. And we had had a really solid marriage before he became work addicted. And I just didn't know if I was going to be able to hang on. And that's the book that we were interviewed by you last time, That Which right. Doesn't Kill Us, How One mm-hmm. Couple Became Stronger at the Broken Places. But we were a hair away from going the divorce statistics way. Okay. Um, if you had to boil all of this down to one golden rule, one nugget out of 101, and maybe it's not even one of those 101, what would it be? It's the last one in the collection. The 101 one-liner is, what is available in a committed partnership is so much bigger than our puny little imagination can even conjure up. And so so if we do our own work, our own personal growth work, and we're in league with our partner, and they're doing their personal growth work, and we have a contract with each other that we're going to bring out the best in each other, ecstatic, you know, stellar, unbelievable things are available. And I think that that's um, not the norm I think it's only the rare couples that are committed to that kind of personal growth and supporting each other's growth. But I think it's a growing movement, and I'm really happy about it. I think this is the the cutting-edge way of romantic partnership, that it isn't about economic security. It's not just about having a regular sexual partner or somebody to raise kids with. It's using what the relationship tosses up for our own personal growth and development. Okay. Do you guys have kids? Yes, and they're grown. My daughter is almost 40, and my son is 44, and we have three grandsons. And that's where Charlie is right now. He's taking care of the grandsons. We take care of them on Wednesdays. All right. Well, give my best to Charlie. I will. Okay. All right. Uh, Let's get into the book a little bit more. Um, How did you then uh, go about writing this? So Charlie came up with these top 20, and then from there, you know, it was like this should be published. So what was the process of pulling this together? Did Charlie kind of lead the way in the bullet points, and you did the editing, or did you go back and forth, or did you have, you know, 
work sessions. Uh, did one person do the writing and the other person did, did again, do, do the editing or how, what was your process? If you, yes. you know, if you don't mind my asking. Back, this is the first book we ever wrote, even though it's the fourth one that we published, the, the first one that we published, do you know that there was another book first that we wrote and that we put that on the shelf? So the first one that we wrote, I wouldn't let him touch any of my chapters. I wasn't secure about my writing, and I didn't want him to change anything. But by the time we got to this book, which was the first one that we published, I wasn't so finicky about it can't touch my stuff. So okay. I would write a lot of the rough drafts. I don't have, you know any problem doing the rough drafts. I just stream of consciousness, write down any ideas, I leap all around, and it's not very literary, the first draft that I wrote. And then I would bring it to Charlie, and he was the English major, and he really has a beautiful sense of language. He's such a wordsmith, and there's a part of him that's just a silver-tongued poet. And so he can refine my very crude ideas. We would brainstorm the ideas together, then I would write mm-hmm. the first draft, and then he comes in and he beautifies everything. That's beautiful. How long did it take for you guys to pull the book together? Yeah, it, the first one was a couple of years. Each one of them has taken at least two and this this last one that just came out this spring, um, that one actually took longer because we put it aside for a long time, and then we took it out and dusted it off and prettied it up. Got it. But okay. I've gotten to the point where I enjoy writing now. At first I was in tears, in tears a lot. It was a struggle. But I'm actually getting a big kick out of it now. It's You know, it's like any other skill. You get more experienced as you go. Mm-hmm. Um, what is the biggest misconceptions about marriage that people have when they go into it? I think they're just uh, shocked when you hit a rough patch. Do you know, they think because they're so in love and because they're committing to each other that the trust is just going to get higher and higher and and then sometimes when the kids come, that really complicates things. As much as we want them and we love and adore them, we're not traveling as light. You can't just pick up and go on a trip and pick up and go out to eat in the movie, and it's more complicated. And sometimes, you know, you really get into differences about how you want your life to look. And I think that um, I, make, I go way out of my way to tell the young couples when they're getting together, you're likely to hit some rough spots from time to time. It's a good idea to make a pact with each other that if either one of you feels that you need professional help, you just go no questions asked. I think that's a good guideline because sometimes people get into a rough place and they just stay in the sewer, if you know what I mean. Do you know how how long the average amount of time is that a couple's struggling before they call for a marriage counselor? Oh, ten years? Six. Yeah, it just breaks my heart that people are so pain tolerant that they can just stand, you know, being tense and having incomplete issues and subjects they can't talk about. And then, you know, they can go months or longer with no sex. And I think it's just a shame and a waste. I wish more people would reach out to ask for help. All right. Um, Let's talk about what are the most frequent issues that couples run into. Uh, You know, obviously communication. If you don't have communication, it's not going to work. So we can talk about that. But besides that, what, what, you know, uh, what are the big ones that come up that you hear over and over again in your practice? And then when you money, (laughs) okay, money, sex, Mm -hmm. power around decision-making in-laws, Kids, usually there's one who's a stricter disciplinarian and the other one's more lenient, and how you spend your leisure time. And these are the half dozen, you know, top issues. And people tend to go round and round with them, and um, they sometimes <laughs> they don't figure out why they keep having the same conversation over and over and, and hitting the blocks about it. And I always encourage people to go deeper 
You know, mm-hmm. what is it that you're afraid of? What is the pain here? Is this reminiscent of anything in childhood? Are you rewounding each other and banging into those sore spots? And usually when people start to investigate that, they they find what the pain is around and what the fear is around. And when they start communicating in that vulnerable communication, there's understanding, not necessarily agreement, but understanding. And then when they're linked up heart to heart with each other, the space gets bigger, do you see, for the mm-hmm. for the differences to float in. And really they can they can find their way to each other. But when they're defended and reactive, man, you just have more pain on top of that. All right. So you one. said Money, sex, leisure, time, in-laws. What were the other two? I just want to have them in front Kids, of me. Kids, power, Kids. and decision-making. Power, okay. All right, so let's, t- let's talk about a couple of those. Um, when you say money, is it about, is the real issue there, is it values where it's how people, it's not the dollar amount, it's how people uh, uh, have experience from their upbringing and their own, how they value money and uh, how they spend money versus their partner. You might have somebody likes to throw the money around and live in debt, and the other person scrimps and saves and is very good building up a, a nest, and they get into squabbles about how money is, um, how the money is spent. And uh, if, if that's the case, uh, should married couples nowadays have separate bank accounts? Um, thoughts on money, values, et cetera? Yeah, you got it. Um, the issues around money are much deeper than what shows on the surface. They, they may be squabbling about you spend too much, oh, you're such a tightwad, but really the money is such a powerful symbol mm-hmm. of trust, stability, caring, do you know, abundance. And so when people go a little deeper and they start talking about what the money means to them, and one may say, you know, I'm free with my spending because we don't, we don't get guaranteed of a future. I want to enjoy the now. This is where life is going on right now. And then the other person gets polarized and say, yeah, well, you want to you wanna spend so freely. We level to be poor when we're old. What if we get to live a long time and we haven't built a nest egg and built up our portfolio? And so mm-hmm. to really stretch into each other's world, to understand each other's point of view, because both people have a point to make. It's not a right, wrong, good or bad issue. They both need each other's point of view. And if they can, sometimes the type type person loosens up a little bit and said, okay, let's splurge and go on that vacation and let's really do it up proud and go to the nice hotel and go to the nice restaurants. But then the next time the decision needs to be made, the other person that's a little bit more conservative needs to be valued and their preferences honored. And they need to feel like they have influence. And so let's let's have a low-budget vacation this year, and the money that we save goes into the savings account, and we don't touch it. That's my peace of mind account. I need it. I know you don't need it. But because of your caring for me, will you do this for me? And, you know, that's what good relationships are made of because people have different values and they have just different emotional triggers and they both need to be respected and valued. One person's will prevailing is going to keep that relationship from being the best it can be. Okay, great answer. Um, uh, how about let's talk about sex, baby. Um Always, sometimes, uh, you know, couples, they, they're all like little jackrabbits before they get married and they get married and they have a child and then the, the, the things happen or don't happen. And one partner wants to get it on and the other partner is like, I want to watch my show and uh, I'm not interested. And the oxytocin goes to the child instead of the husband and all types of issues that nobody's aware of when they go into marriage, unless of course they picked up your book is aware of what could happen. (laughs) So what would your comments be on that for our listeners? 
I think that the issue about one person wants to have more sex and the other person wants to have less is similar to the one person who wants to spend money and the other person wants to save it. You have to go deeper and what the sexual experience represents to you and how meaningful it is to you. So the person who may not be as interested as, as much, do you know their, their stretch is to be more generous. And the person who wants a lot, maybe more than their partner, is to be lessons in patience for them. And if both people are doing their work, they know what their work is, not to make the other person wrong. Nobody's bad and wrong here, only different. We want to respect the differences, and we want to see if we can stay away from the polarities. Because when we're too polarized, then we think if they were just more like me, we'd be fine. But the other person isn't like you. The other person's very different from you. That's why you were attracted to them in the beginning. Is because opposites attract, and they've got strengths that we don't have. And we have strengths that they don't have, and one of the reasons we're together is to learn from each other. Mm-hmm. So okay. the, the sexual issue isn't always about frequency. Sometimes there's differences about one person's more adventuresome and wants a little bit more novelty, and the other person is a little bit more shy or inhibited. And that also is mm-hmm. lessons in patience for the adventuresome one and lessons in getting a little bit more risky and making that comfort zone a little bit wider. And I always think that's important to have a dialogue an open honest dialogue about what really lights you up and if it's important to your partner it's important to make their sexual well-being as well as their well-being as you know in its entirety a real high priority on your list because that's what the really happy couples are doing they're making their partner's needs as important as their own, not less important than their own and not more important as their own. As This is a balancing act to get these needs just equal. Okay. Let's take a, for instance, with a couple, uh, they have a child. The woman focuses on the child. She keeps the baby weight. She's not interested in sex. The guy's a real horn dog. They're having less and less sex, if any at all. It probably could go forever, and she doesn't care. The guy's pulling his hair out. What do you tell them? I think you need to appeal to the other person's enlightened self-interest. So what I mean by that is to speak about how painful it is to go without something that's important to you. If your sexuality is really important to you and the frequency and the comprehensive experience with the eye contact and full body touching and the, you know, the sweet erotic words and all of that is important to you, to go silent and to just have a stiff upper face and to bear it is not going to work because you're going to build resentment. And it isn't going to work to blame the other person because they may be preoccupied, they may be overtired, um, maybe their emotional energy is going to the child, but they need the feedback from the person who's suffering, but to be responsible about the way they bring it to the other person's attention. That's what I mean about appeal to their enlightened self-interest. So it would sound something like, I really need to talk to you about something that's important to me. I am hurting and I'm lonely for you. And I want to enjoy the kind of beautiful connection that we used to enjoy before the child came. I think that our relationship is going to be sturdy and strong, and I know that I'm going to be happier so that I'm going to have more to give to you and more to give our child if we can find our way together. I know I can't have as much as I want, but I want more than has been happening Mm -hmm. so far. And there's a lot in it for you. 
Because if you have a happy husband, and sometimes it's the other way, you have a happy wife, you have a happy life, both people's needs have to be met if you really want to have a splendid relationship. It can't be lopsided. It can't just be that one person's will gets to prevail and the other person has to be the sacrificing martyr. Okay, great answer. Um, let's take a couple examples from the book. I pulled out number 22. Linda, uh-huh. marriage yeah. is like yoga. <laughs> a lot of stretching. A lot okay. of stretching into the other person's world. Because the things that are really important to them may not be that important to us. One of my um, favorites in the whole collection is one of the most important questions that we ask our partner is, how may I best love you? And so if we sit with our partner and they say, you know, having a robust sexual life is really important, but it may not be as important to us, we stretch into their world. If they say, doing a lot of family vacations with my extended family, I just want to have, you know, my connections with my family, even if we have to fly to the other side of the country to be with them, it's really important to me. I know it's not as important to you, but would you stretch into my world? This is the way I want you to love me. Love me by loving my family. Know my family. I know that there are some nuts in my family, but I I want you to accept them. Do you know, and sometimes it it shows up in different ways, in odd ways, but it's, it's important that we know what it is that lights our partner up and that we're busy being on purpose about doing those things. Got it. Um, your partner, number 47, and I actually had written down number 94, the one you just talked about, how may I best love you. It was so beautiful. Um, I love that one. Yeah. Yes. Your partner is your teacher and your student. That's fantastic. Elaborate, please. Yes. Do you see, we make up reasons for why we married this person or why we partnered with this person. And they're usually of the rational, reasonable, logical kind. You know, he's good-looking, she's attractive, we are the same religion, we have values in common, we have interests in common. And those are true. But there are also these unconscious motivations that are operating. And the soul knows, the very deep, intuitive part of us is attracted to another person because they have strengths that we don't have. And they're attracted to us because we have strengths that they don't have. And we intuit that in each other. Maybe they're more optimistic and we tend to be a little bit on the pessimistic side. So we're attracted to their optimism, their positive life view. And all this, sometimes it, it cooks below the surface. But the very same things that attract us and magnetize us to the other person, after the infatuation wears off, they drive us a little crazy. <laughs> and, Until we realize that they have some very important life lessons to bring to us. And when we start looking through those eyes, the eyes of appreciation and gratitude and curiosity and wonder, is what is this person in my life to teach me? Then we can be more open and available to actually receive these deep life lessons. I'll give you an example from my relationship with my husband, Charlie. He's very introverted. He likes a lot of quiet, meditative time. He's actually gone away on his birthday on meditation retreat where he's completely alone, doesn't talk to anybody, and he's happy as a clam. That is not my idea of the way I want to celebrate my birthday. I want to be with my favorite people because I'm a flaming extrovert, and he's very introverted. And so I used to take it very personally do you know, when he wanted to spend so much time alone, I thought maybe he didn't love me that much. Maybe he's not into me. Maybe he finds me annoying that I talk too much or something. But I realize it's a great strength of his. He's a very self-contained system. He's really self-referential. He really is happy with himself and his own company, and he can spend days all alone and be just as happy as can be. 
And I realized that I needed to learn more about being quiet and being still and being meditative and being alone and tuning into my own approval of myself instead of being hooked on other people's approval out there. If my husband was on the phone now, he would acknowledge me for being such a teacher about relating and socializing and enjoying being with other people. And I feel that I've had that that gift to offer to him where he can enjoy going to a party and talking with people he doesn't even know and have a good time. Because back when we first met, he was so shy and introverted that it was hard for him to go to social events. So we've learned a lot from each other in that domain. But it was a, you know, it was a rub. It was an irritant for a while until we realized this is one of the reasons that we're in each other's life. Mm-hmm. As let's keep going with that thread. Um, another one, number forty-three, is don't neglect your friends because you are married. And I think that's that's a good one to talk about because uh, it's, it's it's important that you don't become so insulated where you lose your friends. And I have friends who some of them will come out and it's no issue, and other ones they're always having to get permission and this and that. And I'm like, I told one or two of them, like, you know, just let me speak to your wife. Let me put, talk to the supervisor. <laughs> see if you can come out for a couple of beers, all right? Uh-huh. It's very and, uh, important. It, it, it is. It's very it important. Is, it is. And my, my wife, thankfully, she's like, go out. You should go out with your friends now. So that, that's good. Um, but it is, it is important. But let's talk about why it's important. Well, when a couple gets together and they're in infatuation stage, they're so enchanted with each other, they want to be with each other 24-7, you know, they, they don't even want to get out of bed and they're looking into each other's eyes and their friends are feeling real neglected <laughs> because they've sort of forgotten for a while. And I always tell the couples who are in the infatuation stage, enjoy it. You know, you might only get months out of it, even if you get a year out of it. Ride it to the dunes. But don't forget your friends, because eventually you're going to have to leave that Garden of Eden. There are going to be little differences that are going to come up and rough patches and misunderstandings and disappointment and arguments. And you're going to need your friends to be able to turn to, to help you, to get through those difficult moments. And if your friends have felt so neglected by you because you haven't invested anything in the relationship for months or a year's time, they're not going to be able to be there for you when you need them. And it's really important not to let your life get so small, that your life is shrunken, because that's, that's not good for the relationship. It's going to be, you know, it's going to be a, a shriveling effect on the relationship. We need input from the outside to keep ourselves interested and zesty and enthusiastic to bring our happy self to the relationship over the long term. Mm-hmm. Mm, very good. Um, here's uh, two more, and then that, that, and then I think we're going to have to wrap it. Uh, but commitment number nine: commitment is in prison. It's a means to greater freedom. And I want to. I think that's important. That's, I, I remember reading a quote from uh, Roger Staubach, the old quarterback for the Dallas Cowboys back in the '60s and '70s. And he said, uh, compared to like Joe Namath had all these partners and everything, sex, sex partners was a real real bachelor, he was always on it. And Roger Staubach was a one woman type of guy. And he said, I can have more again, do more with one woman than going out with 11 women at the same time. And I thought that was very provocative that he said that. And I, I would think a lot of women would think that was a very masculine, sexy type of thing to say. And that kind of ties into this notion that is commitment is in prison. It's a means to greater freedom. Well, a lot of people have a negative association with commitment, and let me tell you, they're not all men either. There's some women that really mm -hmm. have commitment fears. And if you look up commitment in the dictionary, it says assignment to an institution as a prison or a mental hospital. And so some people have a very dark shadow uh, association with commitment. It's not how I see commitment. I see commitment as not the till death do us part if it kills us, I see commitment to the process of awakening, mm -hmm. the process 
of growing. And when you commit to a romantic partner, whether you get married or you don't, if you commit to a romantic partner, I think the powerful commitment is we're vowing to each other to utilize everything that this relationship tosses up for us to learn about ourselves, to learn about the world, to learn about people, to learn about handling differences, and we're committed to the process. And I think when people frame it that way, that's that's an enlivening way of viewing commitment rather than it's some kind of prison cell. Do you know? Because yep. when we commit, we commit to being ourselves and being loved as is and commit to loving our partner as is with the mixed bag of us, do you know, with our flaws and our magnificent failures and our unresolved wounds from childhood and our little neurotic kinky things. And everybody's such a mixed bag. And when you have that depth of commitment, the trust is very solid, and people feel free and safe to be themselves and come out of hiding. And that's an extraordinary thing to be loved as is, that you don't have to hide behind any image. And I think that's really hitting the jackpot when people feel like, I can be myself, I'm not going to, you know, be fat and lazy and let myself go, I'm going to still be on my growth path and be the best that I can be because I want to be the best I can be for myself and I want to be the best that I can be for my partner. But to be loved as I as I am, that's an extraordinary thing. And we're not free to do anything we want to do, you know, to be with other partners or to lie or do any of those things. But we're free to be who we are, and that's quite extraordinary. Hmm. Okay, last one. Um, number, uh, I don't know what number this is, but it was primary relationship is with your partner, not your children. And um, having uh, grown children, when did you have the epiphany that uh, that was so? Because, you know, when you right have away. a younger child, even right when away the child when they was were babies. Three, oh, okay. Yeah. Because we we made agreement kids about that. Kids are so this. needy, though. I mean, children are so needy at those early yes. ages. I'm not encouraging people to neglect their children or be irresponsible parents. But some people get so lost in their role as parent. And this is the most controversial one in the whole book. This is the one that we got emails and and, you know, pushback from people. I'm not encouraging people to be irresponsible in their parenting role, but I think that when they put the children's needs first, high above the well-being of the romantic partnership, they're asking for trouble. I think that they need to put the romantic partnership and the well-being of that as if it was a baby in the family, as if it was a living entity that needed to be fed and, you know, the diapers cleaned up. That That is the best possible chance to have functional family that will last a lifetime and that will model for the children committed partnerships so that when it's time for them to choose, they won't have issues around distrust and fear of commitment and so forth and so on. I think it's one of the greatest gifts we give our kids is a model of a really happy partnership. All right. Fantastic, Linda. We can go on and on, but uh, the time went quickly. Tell us, uh, our listeners, about where they can find this book, where they can learn more about Bloomworks and you and Charlie and well, your other publications and offerings, 101 Things I Wish I Knew When I Got Married, Simple Lessons to Make Love Last, Linda and Charlie Bloom. If they can go to our website, Bloomwork, breakthrough for, Breakthroughs for Couples will also take them to our website. Then you can click and buy 101 Things or any of our books on Amazon. Secrets of Great Marriages is our second book. Happily Ever After and 39 Other Myths About Love is our third one. And, of course, um, 
that which doesn't kill us, how one couple became stronger, the broken places. If they go to our website, Bloomwork, they will easily find us and they will find our books and our schedule. And, you know, every January we come to Kropalu in Massachusetts. So your East Coast, you know, northern area can um, New England people can come and do a class with us in January because 18, 19, 20 will be up there in the Berkshire Mountains at that beautiful retreat center, and we pack a lot of value in the weekend. Fantastic. Well stated. Well, great job, Linda, and always a pleasure speaking with you and Charlie, of course. And please, again, extend my best to him. And uh, I really enjoyed this, and thank you so much. Again, folks, the name of the book is 101 Things. I wish I knew when I got married, and I sure wish I knew a lot of these things then. Simple <laughs> lessons to make love last. I'm still uh-huh. learning every day. Uh, number one is, for me, it's been pay attention. And uh, That's right. That's, that's just in life, and there's a, lot of, a, a lot of them are about that in the book also. So anyhow, anyway, uh, fantastic. Thank you so much, Linda, for being on Guys Guys Radio, and I'm sure we'll have you back again. And in the meantime, all the best to you and Charlie. Thank you so much. Same to you. I enjoyed the interview. All the best. Okay, be well. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. The Guys Guys Radio. All right, we're back. Uh, Just a quick quick, uh, wrap-up for the show. I'll do a quick Guys Guys Guide, and uh, we'll take it from there. Okay, what I want to talk to goes right in line with uh, Linda and Charlie's book, which is – why I waited so long to get married. Uh, everybody, I think, needs to do it when they're ready. And some people have a slower learning curve and others have a faster learning curve. I had a lot of friends who got married right out of college and I was like, whoa, I don't even know who I am yet. And uh, and I certainly don't want to be married. And, uh, and then other people waited and I just kept going and I waited and waited and waited. And I really grew into myself over time. And I finally, after a series of short and long-term relationships that ultimately didn't work out, though I enjoyed them, most of them very much. And I realized that I was uh, totally uh, responsible for my own behavior and for why, you know, my portion of the paradigm in terms of when things didn't work out, when they didn't work out, and I realized for myself, I must be doing something. Uh, I need to like change my game a little bit. And I realized, you know what I have to do? I really have to make room in my heart for somebody else. And once I did that, it all like the light bulb went off. It all came together. And I've told the story before. I'll tell it one more time. And that is I even went home. I, 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 uh, I'd been single so long. Family members never asked me or stopped asking me, when are you getting married? And then one Thanksgiving, I went home and I said, hey, mom, I'm going to get married. And she's like, really? That's fantastic. Who's the girl? When? I'm like, I don't know, but I know it's going to happen. Uh, I'm going to get married next year. So she's like, okay, fine. Let me know. And then uh, sure enough, a year later, I was engaged. I met somebody and I was engaged a year later. And uh, then we got married and this worked out. It's been eight and a half years now. But I had to have that epiphany of I had to make room in my heart for somebody else. It couldn't just continually be just about me. I needed to share what I had, what I had learned, what I was learning, and the journey. And when I did that, things uh, came to me. The universe delivered. So that's my story, at least. Um, but I think the point is that you have to get married when, you, when it's right for you. If you don't feel 100% committed, don't go into it just because you need to go into it. Almost to a person, all the women I've talked to who are divorced, I asked them, when did you know you were going to get the marriage wasn't going to work? And almost to a person, I know this is weird, but almost to a person, they said, when I was walking down the aisle, I'm like, wow. I was thinking, like, why, why would you do that? Put yourself into that position, get to that point, and you realize this isn't happening. But I guess that's part of human behavior, human nature, whatever. So don't do it until you're ready. And don't be afraid that the right person isn't going to come along. If you make room in your heart, you'll really, you'll, you'll attract like attracts like. So if you have room for somebody else there, you should find somebody who wants to squeeze in there and be with you. So anyhow, that's my thought. We're going to be back. Um, this is Columbus day weekend, as I had mentioned coming up next Monday. And we have a 
uh, a psychic and an author, Morgan Lynn. She's a very interesting person. I spoke to her on the phone a couple months back, and I really want to have her on a show. We're going to take some calls, so we'll do some mini readings, and we're going to do it the show Monday night. So Monday night, uh, Columbus Day, instead of our usual Sunday night, we're going to do it Monday night. So I hope you guys have a great weekend. It's beautiful here in the Northeast. I hope you enjoy the baseball games, the football games, the basketball games. It's all happening right now. And just the weather and, uh, and all of that fall culture that comes around. So anyhow, all the best to everybody. And remember, as I always like to say, guys, guys, finish first. Mm-hmm.